Well, we have two weeks left in the story. And if you haven't been reading along in the story, there are free copies still out in the lobby for you. And that's, we've got them, and you might as well take them. So if you want an extra or you want to give one to a friend, go for it. Um, the story is really just a condensed Bible. It's very easy to read. And we've been walking through this for the last 13 weeks. And we have this week and next week to finish it up. Um, so as we have learned all along, the story is about God's plan for life. Last week on Easter, we talked about how life actually wins. In the end, life defeats death. And the resurrection of Jesus is the evidence that that is the case. So from beginning to end, the Bible is a book about forever enjoyable, forever expanding life. And if you haven't experienced the kind of life that Jesus died and rose again to provide for you, then you're missing out on what it means to be a human being. You're missing out on your created purpose. Um, now, I, d I do want to ask you a question, not from the story Bible, but from your regular Bible. If you're looking to have a good time, like to have some fun, and you want to open your Bible, what book of the Bible would you turn to for just some good, good old-fashioned fun? Probably not Judges or Leviticus or something, so where would you go? I would turn to the book of Acts, right? Acts is... Tons of fun because what you have in Acts is the resurrection power of Jesus infused into the disciples, them being empowered by the Holy Spirit, mobilized by love, starting to spread the message everywhere, and all sorts of fireworks erupt when they start spreading the message everywhere. Like, if you thought it was a big deal how people reacted to Jesus, now it's going to happen like that, only on a, a much bigger scale, a global scale. As the, the good news about Jesus starts to spread, you have amazing amounts of resistance to that good news and warm acceptance of that good news, sometimes in the same town, sometimes among the same families. Uh, and so you have, in the book of Acts, miracles and riots and persecutions and and you know, terrible things like killings and, and deceptions, but you also have like revivals. And it's a fun book to read because you see what happens when God's plan for life is released into the world. Now, here's the other part that I think is exciting about the book of Acts. The book of Acts closes in the middle of the first century. Um, so if you're, you, know, you think about the, the timeline after Jesus dies, we have a bunch of the story that follows, but we don't have the whole story. In fact, the story of the book of Acts is still happening right now. You're a part of it, I'm a part of it. And so when we're, what we're reading in the Bible is kind of the introduction to life being released, like the resurrection of power of, uh, power of Jesus is now out there spreading virally throughout the world, and the story that that represents is not finished. The story, in fact, is also a part, your part of that story, your life, your testimony, the things that you choose to do. It's all loaded in to not just like your life, your timeline, you know, your little viewpoint, but this is now you're a part of something a lot bigger. So uh, after the resurrection, we see the followers of Jesus now empowered by the Holy Spirit, mobilized by love, spreading the message of new life everywhere. And you might remember from the reading kind of this key verse, Acts 1.8, where Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then on to the ends of the earth. That is, everywhere you go from now on, you know something that most people have no idea. They yearn to know it. They yearn for there to be a way out of death. Uh, you know about it. So now you're the witness that this is possible. So the disciples here, they get to go out, 
not, on, not alone, but like God's power is with them and they have one another to lean on and they start spreading the message. And when you think about that, numerically, there were 12 sort of core disciples and then there were 120 other disciples following Jesus. So you could go through, we only know some of their names, right? There was Mary Magdalene was one of them. Uh, there, were, there were a variety of people who had believed in Jesus along the way. So you think about like the woman at the well or various people who had been healed, the lame man, the blind man who had been made to see. You have these believers and now that Jesus has risen from the dead, now their testimony is even more powerful because it's not just, oh, I met the most amazing teacher or, oh, wow, this, this guy, he, he, he knows the prophecies so well or, wow, this person healed me. You're now sharing a story about someone who rose from the dead, who because he died on the cross, defeated the power of sin and evil, and then because he rose from the dead, defeated the power of death, and you get to go share that story, that transforms you, that changes everything. And so the disciples started to move forward with this mission in mind. Okay, we also see Matthew reporting that mission to us as well in words that we call the Great Commission here at our church. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, like we just did. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, which is what we're doing right now, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the idea was not that there would be 12 disciples and it's done. It, the idea was that those 12 disciples would multiply and so the 12 plus the 120 and all the people who were following Jesus, the idea was that they wouldn't just be storytellers or they wouldn't just become pastors. The idea was they're, they're a disciple, a follower, a learner of Jesus and learning how to apply his teaching to life. They're supposed to now and go and plant that seed in someone else. And they plant that seed in someone else. And they plant that seed in someone else. And here we are, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the planet, and someone planted that seed in you. Um, and, and that's why you're here right now, because this message and this commission actually did sweep the globe. Christianity became a movement that transformed the world. Okay, in Acts 4, there's a little window into what it would have been like in that first century. Like, what, what did those first believers in Jesus experience together? I think if you were to visit one of their meetings, first of all, they, they, there wasn't a building uh, there was no like sort of professional Christians. There was no staff of the church. There were no there was no like email reminders to do things. There was there there were no seats to sit in. There were no official. There were no traditions because it was all just a few weeks old. So if you were to walk into one of those early church meetings, what would you have found? Well, here it says all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles which were kind of those core 12 disciples who then led all the other disciples, they testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. And you say, finally, right? Life wins and the message is spreading and the whole world comes to believe in Jesus. Well, we're not quite there yet, right? There's, there's some obstacles to overcome because the same people who crucified Jesus and all the power structures and greed and selfishness and lust and pride, like all of that was still out there. And so in the same way that all of that resisted Jesus, now it turns its attention to the followers of Jesus and the resistance to Jesus following starts to grow. All right, so here's what we find. Dramatic persecution, coordinated attacks, public executions of Jesus followers, but the story couldn't be stopped. The forces of darkness were desperate to close the book 
But every new disciple began a new chapter. So you think about the storybook here, we're almost done with it. But really, like you could, if, if the storybook could be a lot wider, and we could say, well, let's keep telling the story of like what, what continues to happen after the book of Acts is done. Well, you would have a chapter in that book, and I would have a chapter in that book, and BCBC would have, and there would be millions of chapters of the book, because every time a new person puts their faith in Jesus, steps forward and says, yes, God, I'll follow you, well, now a new disciple is born and a new story begins, and so, so this, this starts to spread virally all across the world. Now, they tried to stop it, right, and if you know anything about the first few centuries of Christian history, uh, most Christians were under the auspices of the Roman Empire at that time, and you know what happened, right? All sorts of horrible persecutions, unspeakable tortures were done to people to try to make them renounce their faith, to try to make them swear off Jesus, to try to make them promise to serve only the Caesar and not Jesus anymore. And, and, and people, would, people would face these trials uh, with incredible courage. And these were people that were just like you and just like me. Like they didn't have anything extra special that you don't have. Like they just, they believed in Jesus and the whole world was against them and they would still say, I, Jesus has transformed me, I can't deny that. And the love that Jesus offers is more important than my own life. And so these kinds of things happen to believers uh, throughout those first few centuries. And what, what you find as you read history is that the harder the forces of darkness would push against the gospel, the more the gospel would grow. It's kind of an irony, isn't it? That, that the more you persecute Christians, the more of them there are. And yet that's exactly what started to happen. Um, the martyrdom of the 12 disciples, which there's evidence that probably 11 of the 12 were martyred for their faith. Um, and on this map, it kind of plots where they were killed. And you think, okay, this was a small group of guys traveling by foot, starting in Jerusalem. And it would have been easy for them to say, man, these are my brothers, we've been a small group for three years, we don't want to split up, and they could have just stayed like a really, really cool small group to be a part of for the rest of their days, and all those dots would be in Jerusalem. But look at that, where did they end up in their lives? And if that's just where they died, if you look at the range of where those, just those first 12 did ministry, it actually spreads quite a bit north and a bit west from what those plots represent. That is, they were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. Go into all the world and preach the good news. Go and make disciples of all the nations. But here's the thing. This is just the 12. Every disciple that was made sparked another chain of events that went a different direction, and we don't have all that history. So you literally have, of, of, of starting out with a few hundred, and then a few thousand, and then millions of Christians across the world all following Jesus. And what that results in is an unstoppable viral movement uh, that changes everything. Tertullian was a church father from Carthage, which would be in North Africa, and in the early 200s, uh, he wrote to some of the Roman authorities at the time that were doing the persecuting. He wrote, we sprung up in greater numbers the more we are mown down by you, and the blood of the Christians is the seed of a new life. That's actually another translation of his words is where we get that phrase that you might have heard, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That is, the more, the more you try to oppress Christians, the more it actually highlights why they're right about you. And, and the, more that, the more that more people start realizing, whoa, this is real. People are willing to give their lives for this. I should check this out. 
And the more that Christianity was oppressed, the more it started to spread. Every disciple became a new testimony of Jesus' love and a demonstration of his power. Now here's what's exciting. You're a disciple, and I'm a disciple, in the same way that Nicodemus was a disciple, or Matthew was a disciple, or the woman at the well was a disciple, or Lydia was a disciple. You go through the whole, all the New Testament characters, they had the same exact thing that you have. Faith in Jesus in their heart, the power of the Holy Spirit on their life, and the love of a Christian community around them, and they transformed the world with that. And you and I are given the same power, we have the same calling, we have the same commission. So you are a disciple just like they were, and now you get to step forward in your time here in the 21st century and say, well, the, the world still needs the gospel, there's still hope that needs to be spread. In fact, if you think back to what the first century might have been like, in a world of violence, hatred, conquest, racism, perversion, slavery, selfishness, immorality, greed, corruption, envy, and pride, I was trying to describe the first century, but it all feels a little bit familiar, doesn't it? A community based on faith, hope, and love is revolutionary. So think about it. Is what we're doing right here in this moment revolutionary? Well, not in format. I mean, anybody could have a, a service, right, and talk and teach. It's not about the buildings. It's not about the names. It's not about the labels we put on ourselves. It's, it's, the thing that's revolutionary is the fact that faith, hope, and love live in our hearts through the gospel. And when Jesus changes you and fills you with faith, hope, and love, that changes who you are, and now you become a disciple who is, starts to spread the gospel to others. So this changed the world. This changed one person at a time, one community at a time, but it eventually changed uh, the whole course of history, and it still is in the process of changing history. The last line there, the explosive multiplication of Christianity was just beginning. So, when we open up the book of Acts, which I want to encourage you to do right now, we find a few things that were common to those first believers, and I believe that these five things are what you need and what I need today if we're going to be effective disciples of Jesus right now. Okay, so Acts chapter 3 we see the first thing that the disciples had that made their work so effective, power. Now, they didn't have political power. I mean, they weren't politicians. They were kind of nobodies. They had God's power at their back. So when they would stand up, it wasn't just them. It was the power of God with them. And that's when things get fun. So we start in chapter 3, verse 1. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the 3 o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently. and Peter said, look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money, but Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. Well, Peter took the lame man by the hand, helped him up, and as he did, the man's feet and ankles instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. Now remember, the temple, this wasn't like, it wasn't a Christian church. This, is, this was the Jewish temple. 
And there would have been lots and lots of people there, and all of them knew this lame man because he had been there begging. So the witness that Peter and John could have brought, like just two regular guys kind of walking in for the typical prayer service, well, that wouldn't have caused a stir. But because the power of God was with them, this lame man jumps to his feet, everybody knows who he is, he walks into the temple, and now what happens? Well, everybody has to pay attention. I mean, the guy is walking. So that's, if you kind of continue on there, verse 9, all the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. And when they realized that he was the lame beggar that they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. That day... Thousands of people put their faith in Jesus, the scripture records for us. One opportunity, one witness, one moment where the power of God was evident, suddenly things are transforming all around. So you could have a whole other chapter of the story for just this one guy, right? Here's this lame man who walks and now there's a huge movement that spreads because of his testimony not because he was great, but because the power of God worked in his life. Okay, the second thing we see is in Acts chapter 4. So go over to Acts 4 and look at what happens. Peter and John, remember, the same forces of darkness are kind of still at work trying to resist Christianity. So they thought, they'd, I mean, they thought, hey, we've got it. Like when they killed Jesus, they thought it was over. Then they realize, okay, it's not over because Jesus' followers are doing even more than he did to stir things up. So they're thinking, how can we quiet this down? How can we stop this spread? Um, and here they, they call Peter and John and they're just like, please guys, stop talking about Jesus. And they say, well, how, why would we stop talking about what's true, what we've actually seen and heard? Verse 12, they say to the council, there is no salvation in anyone else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no training in the scriptures. And they also recognized them as men who were with Jesus. So here, there, there was really no stopping it at this point, right? Because the cat was out of the bag. The truth was out in the streets. Everyone knew that the power of Jesus that they had heard about was still alive and well and now being worked through his disciples. So the, so the power of God was there. The disciples were bold with that power. Then we see another dynamic all throughout the book of Acts and all throughout our reading this week. We see that the people who were following Jesus were willing to obey right away. When they would get prompted by God to do something, you don't see Peter and John going to the temple and saying, oh, wow, there's a lame man. Like, we should start a ministry and minister to lame people, or we should, we should pray about whether we pray for this guy. Like, there was no pause, right? They saw the opportunity, they jumped right in, and this amazing divine encounter happened. Okay, we see that again in chapter 8. Uh, 8 is interesting because so, so there's a lot of neat things going on in Acts at the same time here, but in chapter 8, you have, this, you have the pressure of the council, like the leaders of the time, really turning the screws tight on the Christians in Jerusalem. So what did the Christians in Jerusalem do? Like, what would you do if they were turning the screws really tight right here? Well, you'd go somewhere else. So, so they thought that they'd clear them all out. Well, where did the, what happened? Well, as they went, they shared the gospel. So the more the persecution came, the more Christians started to spread out and share with even more people. 
and the multiplication uh, went on and on. So verse 3 of chapter 8, or verse 4, the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told people there about the Messiah. And that lit up a big, uh, a big issue and a whole bunch of crowds and then more and more people coming to the faith. And then Philip was done there, and then he jumps to the next situation, which we see in verse 26. As for Philip, the angel of the Lord said to him, go south to the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I was Philip, and I had just had this amazing thing happen in Samaria, and then I hear this voice in my head saying, okay, now here's the next place to go, what would I probably do? I mean, first, I'd be like, okay, is this, is this just me thinking this, or is this actually God talking to me? Uh, and if I could get past that, then I would think, well, God, you know, I'm willing to do that, but man, I, I, I probably owed at least a few days of vacation in between these big events, so like, you know, I would take a rest, spend time with family, all that kind of thing. Um, or I might even think, like, I don't, I don't know if I have money to go down that road, I don't, know, I don't have security with me. There'd be a whole bunch of different things going through our minds but what did Philip do when he got this call? Hey, go south of this road. He did it. He just went. Doesn't say he resisted at all. And then we see Philip like over and over again just obeying like these little promptings from God. Um, verse 27. So he started out. And what happened? Well, he met the treasurer of Ethiopia. Random encounter, right? But it wasn't so random because here is another person who has immense influence in another part of the world Philip obeys the call of God, he gets there, he finds this treasure of Ethiopia, and what is actually happening? Well, it says this guy was a eunuch of great authority under Kandaki, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning, seated in his carriage. He was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. He happened to be reading a book about, or a, a prophecy about the coming Messiah, Philip runs up to the chariot, the guy says, you know, here's what I'm reading, I wish someone would explain it to me. An amazing divine encounter. Now the guy puts his faith in Jesus right there after he understands what that prophecy means. He looks over at the water on the side of the road and he says, well, there's water. I'm committed to this thing. Why not just go ahead and do a baptism right here? Philip says, great. So they, they get in, they do the baptism. Philip is taken away to the next ministry assignment and now here's this Ethiopian leader heading back to his country and another chapter of the story is started through him. This is why it was impossible to stop Christianity once it started, because every new disciple was a new chapter of the story, resulting in more and more and more multiplication. And I see the power of God at work, the boldness in the lives of the individual people, but they were willing to obey when God would call them. They didn't hesitate. Hey, here's another one, openness. I really think this is important, and this is why things explosively grew in the early church. If you look at Acts 10, remember that a lot of what we've talked about so far is the Jerusalem church kind of still a very Jewish flavor of Christianity happening? And most of the leaders, I mean, they're still following Jewish customs and traditions. And so for them, it was a big jump to jump to other cultures and share the gospel with other people because they had all sorts of rules and regulations culturally about not even being with people that weren't Jews, like let alone open your heart up to them. You weren't even supposed to have lunch with them. You weren't supposed to go to their home. There were all these rules that kept them segregated and separated, and Peter was a part of that culture, and he had to have an open mind to what God wanted to do that went way past any tradition he was familiar with. If you look at, at verse 28, uh, Peter's called to the home of this Gentile. Normally you wouldn't go, but I mean, again, they're instant obedience. Peter says, well, God, if you say so, I'll do it. 
says, Peter told them, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean, so I came without objection as soon as I heard, as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent me. And then here this, you know, sort of like non-Jewish household that normally wouldn't have any experience with faith at all, uh, led by Cornelius. Cornelius replies, well, four days ago, I was praying in my house at the same time, three o'clock in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. And he told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying at the home of Simon, a, san- a tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here, waiting before God to hear the message that the Lord has given you. And right there, an, an incredible divine encounter happens where, you know, if, if people had been closed-minded, if people had been saying, ah, oh, you know, we're taking things slow, we're to keep the traditions alive, none of this would have happened. But the, the, Peter was open-hearted, he, moved, he went right to this, this home of Cornelius, and now another chapter of the story is started, probably the biggest chapter of all, because once the door is open to people that aren't Jews, wow, it starts spreading across the world like wildfire. And then you go over to chapter 13, and you find how already the church has become multicultural. Already the church has started to involve people of all different types and statuses, and rich people and poor people, people from all different places um, in the area. If you look at 13 verse 1, it says, Among the prophets and teachers of the law at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Maon, a childhood companion of King Herod, and Saul. One day as these men, that's not a group you'd normally get together, right? But, but because of Jesus, their shared faith, like they were together, they were leading this church forward. They're fasting and praying together for direction from God. And God says to them, dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I've called them. And after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. And that, that starts the narrative that's the rest of the book of Acts, which is Paul's journey, Saul became Paul, his journey all across the, the Roman Empire there to share the gospel. And again, that's just another one chapter of the bigger story uh, that we get to read recorded for us in the book of Acts, knowing that there were so many different stories happening all at the same time. So to me, this is the, the good news is God's power is at work. It was at work in the book of Acts. It's still at work now. And if, if we would join our early church brothers and sisters in living this way, and I think we would see exactly the same results that they saw. So think of it this way. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you become a disciple, and a new story chapter begins. So then you ask questions like this, like before you read the chapter. Uh, well, where will, where will you go with the gospel? Or what surprises or struggles await for you? What miracles will you see unfold? Uh, what, how will you multiply disciples? Who will be with you on the journey? It's an exciting road ahead, an adventurous road ahead where you get to be a part of kind of your own book of Acts as God works through you uh, to do his work in this world. My parents, if you've ever met them, I hope you get the chance sometime, they visit occasionally, they live over in Ohio, um, they're, they're jail chaplains, they've had a whole bunch of crazy experiences in ministry. And I remember one day when I was a little bit younger, um, my, someone asking my parents um, the question, hey, why do seems like you guys are always reporting like miracles and amazing things happening. Like, why has that always happened to your family and like not to other families? And my parents thought about that for a while because they didn't want to answer 
you know, it's a, it's, it's a heavy question, but like factually it was correct. Like when they would say like it's sharing time at church, my parents would always have like amazing things to share. And then they'd say, okay, who else wants to talk? And you know, everybody would just kind of, <laughs> and it's like, well, why is that? What was happening? And so my parents finally decided that their answer to that question, which I do agree with them on, was the reason they see so much action is because they moved up to the front lines of the battle. So if you play it safe in your life, you're not going to see miracles. You're not going to be a part of all these Book of Acts type activities because you're in the background somewhere waiting or being safe or whatever. Uh, but if you're willing to be bold and, and take action and put yourself out there and take risks for the gospel, then you'll see God's power at work as well. That's why it requires faith. You have to take the step first before you see how it all works out. So just to kind of conclude today, I wanted to turn those five um, the, the five things we see in the book of Acts that were defining the disciples into some marching orders for us. Like for us to be effective disciples in the 21st century, what will it take? Well, we'll take exactly the same things. So number one, we make the choice. I'll rely on God's power. Instead of saying, okay, I've got to get my whole life figured out. I have to get all of my own stuff together first before I can even think about spiritual things. Um, I have to, you know, I have to focus on, on what I can see in front of me. Instead of that, you say, God, I realize my life is backed by your power. So if you want to take me in place, to places I don't expect or call me to do things that I didn't think I was qualified to do, I'm willing to trust you. I don't trust myself, but I do trust you. So I'll take a step forward based on knowing that your power backs me when I step forward for the kingdom. The second choice we make, I'll choose boldness when the moment comes. And you know when the moment comes. I know when the moment comes. It's that moment where you realize there's an opportunity right in front of me, right now, to speak up for the gospel, to share love with someone, to do something unexpected, to, to be like Jesus to someone in a way they don't expect. And if I pause, if I, if I think too much, the moment is going to pass right by and I'll live in regret that I didn't take the opportunity and so, Lord, would you give me boldness to speak and act when the moment comes, just like they did in the book of Acts? Okay, and that kind of ties to number three. I'll choose quick obedience so that I don't miss divine opportunities. Um, I've always, you know, I wrestle with that. I'm sure you have too. Sometimes you feel like, wow, I really feel like God wants me to do something, but is it just me thinking that up or does God actually want me to do something? And the way that I've wrestled with that, and you know, I don't bat a thousand on that either. Sometimes I, I walk away from something, oh man, I should have like said something or I should have t given something or whatever. But, but in the moment when the prompting comes, uh, what I think is, is this a bad idea anyway? Like if, if God didn't give me this idea, is this actually a bad idea? If it's not bad, if it's just a little bit weird, I'll go ahead and do it. But I would rather take the opportunity um, to be bold and occasionally be a little too bold, then miss opportunities because I'm playing it too safe. All right? So choose quick obedience. And then the final choice is I'll choose openness to people, places, options, changes, next steps, just like the early church. Something interesting about movements, if you study them throughout history, is as soon as movements turn into institutions, they stop being movements. So as soon as people start building cathedrals and giving each other awards for, you know, you, you, you're, you're the best at this or that, like, they lose the sense of movement because there's no, there's not viral anymore. It becomes something, you know, something you've got to control, some sort of organization. And, and so if we want our Christian faith to be a movement and not just an institution, then we have to have the mindset where we stay open-hearted, open-minded. Say, hey, you know, sure, traditions, institutions, organizations, 
I, we use them as tools, but that's not what matters to me. What matters is the faith advancing. What matters is faith, hope, and love spreading. And whatever it takes to see that happen, Lord, I'm open to that. Okay, and then number five is a, is a plural choice we have to make together. We'll choose to join in mission together by praying for God's direction and saying yes to his call. It's like what we find the people in the book of Acts doing. When they would be praying, they'd be praying for God's help as they went forward in the mission. Uh, when we see them working with each other, we see them teaming up and going to places that no one had taken the gospel before to, or saying, Lord, where do you want to send us? And they would go, and their, their lives were filled with intentionality, but they did it as a team. And you and I can have that same dynamic at work in our lives. That's what our church is all about. That's why we're gathered here. It's not just we like hanging out as friends or we get to sing together or something. It's actually because we are on mission together. That's what this whole thing is all about. So I want to pray for you and with you and for myself to, to be faithful um, as, as my chapter of the story is written and your chapter of the story is written to be a faithful disciple um, and a disciple that's willing to take some of these risks and challenges to heart. Here's three questions that we can pray about. Will the 21st century be defined by a dramatic expansion of life? If it's going to be that way, it's going to be coming through people like you and me as we share the gospel, as we share the life in our generation, just like people shared it with us. Will we, the disciples of this era, go just as boldly with the gospel as the first century Christians did? And then very personally, will you say yes to God? Take your place in the story. There is a great adventure to live, and there is a lot more ahead uh, that God has in mind for each one of us. And it just starts with a simple choice. Say, Lord, I'm willing to live by faith, and I'm willing to walk the way those first disciples did. So let's pray for the grace to do that. Uh, Lord, we see all throughout the pages of the Bible evidence of your grand design and power. And now, when we open up the book of Acts, and we see the impact of your resurrection and the gospel truth on people's lives, and we see how it starts to change and transform whole cities, whole communities, and individual people, um, moving them from persecutors to um, bold witnesses themselves, moving people um, into hope and into love. I pray that you would give each one of us the courage that we'll need to follow in the footsteps of our founding generation of Christians, that like those early disciples, we would count your love and purpose of greater value than even our physical lives, that like those early disciples, we would take every opportunity for witness that we're given, that we would be bold knowing that your power backs what we're doing. I pray that you would help us to be open to next steps or next moves or unexpected twists in the plot of our own story. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a spirit of togetherness on this mission, that we would not think of this task as something that we have to go tackle alone, but instead see that the people we're sitting next to and the people who are in the room with us right now are commissioned right alongside us to be disciples and disciple multipliers in this generation. 
We look forward to seeing where the story will go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.